You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell. You've heard the wise words, no doubt. Don't try to change the person you love. Love them for who they are, not who you want them to be. You've heard that, right? Well, my guest in this episode is here to tell you that it's a myth a damaging myth. Jamin Fraser is a returning favourite of the show. His brand new book is called Leverage, How to Change the People You Love for All the Right Reasons and Get the Relationships You Deserve. This is not brutal, narcissistic, get-what-you-want-at-all-costs. In classic Jamin's style, this is an approach based on love and respect. He argues that not only should you try to change the people you love, you might very well condemn yourself to a miserable relationship if you don't. I first spoke to Jamin in 2021. That conversation was all about his book, Unhindered, and Jamin's determination to help people solve the insecurity problem. If you haven't listened to that one, episode 161, I strongly recommend that you do, but not before you listen to this one. It's a beauty. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jamin Fraser. Jamin Fraser, welcome back to the Team Guru Podcast. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks so much for having me. Massive pleasure to have you back. I made no secret last year of the fact that our conversation about your book, Unhindered, was one of the best I've ever had on this podcast. I love your work. I love that episode, and this is going to be no different. I can feel it in my bones. Hey, Jamin, tell us about the journey from your book, Unhindered, to this one, Leverage, how to change people you love for all the right reasons and get the relationships you deserve. What happened in your professional, personal world to go from Unhindered to Leverage? Yeah, that's a a great question. Nice place to start. I think a couple of things happened. I make no secret about the fact that writing is very difficult. I don't find it a natural process. It often feels like a foreign language to me. I, I talk about this content all day, every day. Coach, I've coached thousands of people over the last 12 years, but to sit down and write it feels very difficult, but very important nevertheless. And so when I finished Unhindered, I thought, oh, wow, well done, Jamin. You've just put out you know, your most important book and maybe the last book you'll ever write. And and it might have only been three months later then I finally came to terms with the fact that the One Minute Coach project, which I've been working on for over five years, that that had to be turned into a book as well. I had 365 pieces of content, short sound bites, 60 seconds of content, the, the hardest writing I've ever done because you have to be so precise when you've only got 60 seconds to play with to deliver a complete idea and a unique idea and an idea that doesn't clash with any other ideas. So I turned that into a book as well. And then again, I thought, wow, well done, Jamin. <laughs> More hard work you've done. But there's this theme around unnecessary suffering, which keeps me up at night. And, and that is, you know, I think life is suffering. I like Mark Manton's take on that, that it's not necessary to try and avoid suffering. In fact, it's suffering that creates the most significant growth and change in us, but not not all suffering is equal. There's suffering that's meaningful, that leads to life, and then there's suffering that's unnecessary. And, and in fact, 
leads to death. It, it really causes a big toll on the human psyche. And so I consider insecurity as unnecessary suffering. I consider that a solvable problem. But then over the years of coaching around insecurity, I think almost every client I've ever worked with has had some kind of relationship pain still related to their own relationship with themselves. But the conversations and the framework I've used to have those conversations over the last 15 years have been consistent and have increased in quality. And and I had a clear, a clear picture about how I coach people around relationship pain and it felt unkind to hold that back. And so after listening to a Jerry Seinfeld interview on Tim Ferriss's podcast, Jerry describes himself as a writer, as the central organizing principle of his life. And I came to terms with the fact that I too am a writer. And if I'm a writer, I better get to the work of writing. And so this book I accepted reluctantly. It felt inappropriate not to give my heart to it. And so thus began the process of writing again. And amazingly, this book got picked up by a publisher. So that process was very different. They were involved from the start rather than self-publishing all the rest. You are on the radar now. And I always say that there's nothing like writing to iron out your thoughts. We, you know, you can get around thinking that you have a complete thought about something or you have a fully formed opinion about something, but it's not until you go to write it down that you realize you've still got some developing to do. The, the writing process is beautiful. Hey, you know, when I started reading your book, it reminded me at the beginning in theme of Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving an F. And you do it in a in a in a Jamin kind of way, a different style to him. But it, it reminded me of that. And then lo and behold, a few pages later, he was the first person that you quoted during the book, which uh, which was nice fulfilling for me. It felt like I'd, I'd landed on something. Hey, you you address really early in the book the old myth, the myth that tells us that you sh- you can't, you shouldn't, you must not try and change the people that you love. You've got to love them the way they are. I love the way you address this myth head on as you do so many important concepts. Tell us why that is a myth. Well, I, I think the place that I start in the book to answer that very question is with a study of 2000 couples that LG Electronics did, and they discovered that one in three intimate couples, married or otherwise, wake up beside the, the most annoying person that they know, which is an extraordinary statistic. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Uh, a third of couples uh, you wake up have have as their life partner the most annoying person they know, and I just thought, well, you know, no one starts out like that. You don't pick out of a lineup of potential suitors the most annoying person you can find. That no one starts out like that, and I think the start of every relationship is the same. Uh, it's clean when you form a new friendship, when you start a new employment situation, when you fall in love. The space between two people is clean, and rapport is at its at its most pure, and so. It just doesn't stay like that naturally. In fact, the only thing that's going to happen next is the space will become polluted. Stuff will happen. You'll annoy each other. You'll upset each other. You'll disappoint each other. You'll do things that clash. And so if you don't know how to clean the space again, then things deteriorate and get worse. And now there is space between you. So to clean the space is to do conflict and actually to bring change. If you do something that annoys me and I don't find a way to cause you to not do that, and then we will grow apart. And if our desire is to be close and there's this thing that I can't talk about and you don't know how to stop, well, then there's no way we can be close. There'll be stuff between us. And and the same, it might be me that does something that annoys you. And if you don't know how to tell me about that, 
and force me to face that, my own blind spot, and deal with that, then it can't be good for our relationship. So I think the reason why people assume you're not supposed to change the people they you love is because they've obviously had painful experiences at trying. It's gone really bad. They've gone into battle with the wrong tools at the wrong time for the for the wrong reason and got hurt and then gone, oh, I think that's because I was inappropriate. It shouldn't I shouldn't even have gone there in the first place. I think you have to. It's not only appropriate, it's essential. And if you can do that work and understand it in the right way, you know, then you can clean that space and move back to closeness and intimacy and rapport with the people you care about. I love the way you describe through the book the the space between two people and the fact that it can be either clean or messed up and dirty. And as you describe that, that's a it's a beautiful metaphor. The imagery is clear and you you know, you can't help but think about the relationships you have and whether the space is clean and pure and healthy or or in fact it's cluttered with gunk and dirt. Yeah, you do a great job of that and you get very early in the book, you you start talking about this concept of leverage. Now, if I didn't know you, Jamin, I would have thought, geez, where is this going? Using leverage in a personal relationship with the person I love most in, in the world. It sounds rather Machiavellian, but because I know you and and I've spoken to you before and I've read your other your, your book Unhindered, I know that it's coming from a really positive place and I was really keen to see where you took it and you have me convinced. So describe for us this concept of leverage and how it can sound off-putting and the kind of response you get when you first start talking about that to people. And then tell us what you really mean by it. What leverage is there in my closest relationships? I do like the term manipulation, which again, sounds horrible in loving relationships, but purely means to handle skillfully. So I think, yeah, so I think uh, couples that have lovely relationships manipulate each other with great skill. They bring their best to the game. And I think that leverage at its purest is about moving heavy things. So you require the mechanics of a lever to shift an object that you couldn't move with natural force. So I think um, relationship health is the exception, not the norm relationships deteriorate. That is the norm. Just because you fall in love with someone doesn't mean you'll naturally stay in love with them. Just because you have a great friend doesn't mean you'll always be friends. And so I think it's really important to understand that it does require work to keep health. And that work is really hard and you'll need all the tools you can get. And so change is difficult. People are afraid of change. People gravitate towards what's safe and known and comfortable. Um, But if what's safe and known and comfortable is also dysfunctional, then at times you'll need help to move out of that place. And leverage is around the mechanics of how do you move something heavy or move someone heavy. And where there's love, that gives you enough of a reason to wade into that dangerous territory. So it is a dangerous word, but I think it's a a beautiful word when you understand the fact that you have to qualify for leverage first. And the five stages of leverage are about that qualification and And I'm glad that it felt authentic to you when you understood the work you've got to do before you get a ticket to the game, before you can show up with the right to not only ask change, but to demand change. So a really important concept. You mentioned there very briefly the the five building blocks of using the leverage model. And it reminded me very much of your unhindered, I think it was the seven steps in the framework of becoming unhindered, solving, as you say, the insecurity problem. 
I'm going to ask you to talk through those five building blocks of the leverage model really soon, but you've piqued my interest there. I love the idea of healthy relationships are, are the artful use of manipulation. Now, most of us are here probably right now thinking about our closest relationship, our, our spouse, or our, our loved ones, our significant others, our children, etc. Tell us what artful, healthy manipulation looks like in those type of very close personal relationships. I do love gamification and the metaphor of game thinking and brought into areas that aren't that don't feel like games. So if you can understand that loving relationships are a game, that life is a game, that success is a game, then it makes sense to bring great skill to that game. So my wife knows me better than anyone else on the planet. She knows what I like, what I don't like. She understands me. And so for her to be very skillful and very clever and very wholehearted about showing up to the relationship to help me at, be at my best is a beautiful gift that she gives me. She has created significant change in my life. I am, I am a far better man today in year 23 than when I was 19 when I first took her hand. And she, she has done that at great cost. She's done that with great courage. She's had conversations with me that no one else could have had. She's confronted things in me that no one else would have dared to. But because of her love for me and her desire to be close to me, she's, she's thought it was worth it. And the same with kids, that the kids, they're a, a wonderful gift for, for a season of life. It's not guaranteed that we'll stay close just because we started close. So to bring skill about understanding their personality, understanding what they like, what they don't like, understanding how they are motivated, what causes them grief and what lights them up, and to be skillful about how to help them explore the world and to become their own people not to just impose a map of the world, but to help them have the tools to explore their own world. So I think if you can start with the metaphor of a game, I think that just gears you to then be prepared to think more creatively and add some fun to the element of bringing all your skill, all your intelligence, all your creativity to your most important relationships to enjoy the experience and improve the quality of the space between you. So you talked about your wife having the courage and, and the love to have conversations with you, the type of conversation that no one else would be able to have, difficult conversations. I'm guessing that you did the same for her, though, throughout those 23 years. You know, So did you? And is it even? Is it, does it always have to be the case that, that one partner is learning as much from the other as they are from them? Does it have to be a two-way street with an even flow of traffic? Or is there a, an opportunity or a, or a time where it's right for this to be uneven? I don't think it's ever even, to be honest. Um, I think two people are never ready for change at the same time. So one person has a different pain tolerance. One person has a different level of fear. One person has a different level of ambition. One person reaches a limit before the other. It says, this is not going to work for me. Now the person like, oh, what do you mean? It's fine. It's like, no, it's not fine. We need to talk. And so there have been different times in our relationship where where we one of us has taken the lead in the change process and gone, okay, I'm ready now and I can't wait another day for this conversation. This is not this is not good for us, it's not good for me. So we need to sort this out. So I don't know if I was to take take stock about who has who has run the lead more often on that. You're not keeping a scorecard? I'm not keeping a scorecard. I'd guess I took the lead more often. And I think that's part of my nature, I'm more likely to be 
in a leadership role within our relationship, but whether I've done it more frequently or not, I think the net result has been equal that maybe Catherine has done it less, but maybe she's done it more powerfully and more skillfully. And so the net result has been dramatic growth for both of us. And we have, we both found a way to take the lead when we needed to. All right. Now give me a concrete example. Let's use your kids as an example. Tell me about how you as a dad have engaged in what you would call skillful manipulation, where you you think about them as a person, what they love, what they're good at, what their worldview is forming to be, and you have actively manipulated them. Tell me in a healthy way. Give me an example of that. Okay. A a recent example. So my daughter is 17 now. She's left school. She's begun full-time work. And it's it's difficult work. It's it's quite physical work. She's doing a traineeship to be an apprentice jockey, and she's quite tired now. She's she's a very passionate young woman. She will often give give me a TED talk about the male patriarchy and toxic masculinity, whether I've asked for one or not. She's acutely aware of the injustice of the world and wants to do something. Now, now the skill that I bring to the table with her is to not be threatened by her passion because it's messy. As it was when I was 17, I was clear about how I saw the world and was going to tell people whether I had permission or not. But she doesn't have a platform yet. So no one actually cares what she thinks, just as no one cared what I think, you know, when I was 17. Now that's a difficult lesson to learn. So so my challenge is to bring skills. So not to squash her, not to put her in her place not to reinforce her stereotypes that she's no one and has nothing and no one cares, but to help her understand her place and to help her understand the path. And so one of the ways that I've been skillful with her is, well, you know, I've always thought about modeling as my biggest gift to my kids rather than telling them what to do, show them. So so I show them how I solve problems. I let them see me doing well and doing poorly. I share them with them, my frustrations. They see me in pain. They see me when things don't work out. I talk about that all the time. And I share the things that have worked. So a couple of examples for my daughter is I shared with her the other day, I said, if I was to think about the hacks for how I've got to where I am and the things that have accelerated my growth more than anything other, I think using my car as a university has been a game changer. But I shared that with her knowing that that would intrigue her but without telling her that she must also use her car as a university. And then I took one step further. I There was a, a situation where I had to discipline her and I used the punishment that this book that I'd suggested that it was, she would benefit from reading for some time. I said, okay, uh, here's your punishment. You actually have to read this book. Here is a time frame. Here is this book and you'll need to read this book by this time as a consequence for, you know, here's the punishment I'm dishing out. So she kind of understood the fact that she needed help to read that book. She'd wanted to read it. She hadn't found the time. And I knew that she would love that experience. I just needed to find a way to, to actually force her hand. And the, the funniest thing, thing was she came back the next day and she said, Dad, I opened that book. I haven't opened a book in maybe five years, but the smell, the moment I opened that book, the smell, it took me back to the love of reading that I had 10 years ago and five years ago that I, I'd forgotten. And and instantly she was in that smell provided an anchor. So I had to create, and I still had the ability as a parent to enforce a consequence because she's still under my house. She still plays by my rules. 
I still am bigger than her and stronger than her. I own uh, the money, the food. You know, she's earning some of her own money now, but she still needs me. So, okay, if she still needs me, then I have some power to enforce a few things in her world. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. All right, Jamin, fantastic. I was just, I know this wasn't your main point, but I was musing over the idea of, of your daughter giving you a speech about to- toxic <laughs> masculinity. I'm thinking that maybe you're not the, the main audience that needs to hear a speech about that, but a nice aside. Hey, um, let's talk about these five building blocks of the leverage model, as you always do so beautifully. Tell us about them and talk to us about the order in which they happen, which is really deliberate and you've got to work through this process. You can't start at step number three. Let me see if I can be as as simple as possible without oversimplifying these because there's, there's a little bit in each. So stage one is security. And that is because if you come to the negotiating table or if you come demanding change from those you love while showing up needy and desperate, you're in danger. You're in great danger. You have no substance. All you come with is bluff and threats. And it's very obvious it's all you've got. You know, you see it in people all the time. Parents are a classic example. You see the mother or the father threatening their child. Listen here, don't make me, if I have to, right, don't, if you, you want some ice cream? And that's it. I'm leaving. I'm leaving the shop now. Stay, see you. Bye. And everybody knows, including the kid, you're full of it. You're not doing anything. And the kid just, oh, okay, great, excellent. You're going to leave the shop, bye. Oh, you're going to leave me here all by myself while all these people are watching. Oh, okay, great. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to get ice cream. Oh, okay, really? You watch this. I'll get ice cream. I'll get everything that I want because you need something from me. And so the moment you need something from the person that you are trying to bring change to, you have no power. And it's horrible to watch. So your first job is to do the work around your own value and worth, to know that you deserve to be loved, that you deserve to be treated well, that you are delightful. The other person is very lucky to have you in their world and they would do well to keep you in their world. That's big work. And obviously, you know, the past book that I wrote and all my life's work has been around, okay, so how do you do that? Um, so if, if that's new to you, well, there's a bit of back work to do, but nevertheless, uh, that's really important back work. So stage one, be clear about what you deserve and, and know that in your heart. Once you're clear about what you deserve, then you can move to stage two, which is clarity. Now you can be clear about what you desire. What do you want? What's important to you and what's not important to you? And this is really important because lots of people think they're being clear when in fact they've just nagged. And the moment you use need to language or you nag a person about the things you don't like, what you are clearly communicating to them is that they don't need to change. There will be no consequence. And so you're further embedding and embodying that behavior in your relationship and creating more difficulty for change. So be clear or be quiet. It, it really is that important. Sorry, I cut you off. No, no, you didn't cut me off. I, I was going to ask though, when you've worked with people, and, and again, for some reason, my mind is going to our most substantial relationships in our life, whereas this is applicable to all relationships, but I'm thinking about life partner, kids, et cetera. When you've worked with people through this process and you've encouraged them at stage two to be clear about what you deserve, what you desire, what are some of the things that commonly happen in partners, in marriages, 
that are just not spoken but are having a real eroding effect on the relationship? Are there any kind of categories of things that you see over and over that people just haven't been clear about over time? They've been doing all the other stuff, the nagging and the sulking and the the being down in the dumps and and you know vindictive, but they haven't been clear. What are those things? To be honest, they are always little things, and that's how they escape under the radar. Um, it's easier to be clear about the big things. Don't have an affair. I'm really clear about that. Oh, okay, you know. But the subtleties, you know, when we're in social settings and you just, you know, you how you interact with other people there makes me feel. I don't like it. I feel icky. It embarrasses me. But it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is that I don't like about that. Or, you know, when you come home and you just dump your shoes there or you don't look at me when you walk in the door, it never makes me feel loved. But it's hard to pinpoint exactly what it is that that upsets me. Or, you know, when we have conflict and you just find a way of brushing under the carpet and you kind of address it and you kind of apologise but you don't ever really resolve it, that I just feel so upset by that you know it's the little things i promise you and every time and so the clarity takes some work it requires you to reflect and go okay if you deserve to be loved and you are a wonderful person and they're lucky to have you then you do get to set the standards little things matter uh, because they mattered when you were dating i promise you they mattered when you were the prize and you were beginning this relationship the other person couldn't get away with anything they were on their best behavior and little things were everything so little things are still important you know, that's so interesting. Those examples you gave, you know, I'm seeing the dirty boots behind the front door when you walk in. I'm thinking, yeah, cool. You know, you should call that out and talk about the expectations. That affects all of us. They smell and they look bad. But, you know, when you talk about when we're in public and we're socializing, when you act like this, it embarrasses me. It makes me feel icky. That feels like something that is in the, in the realm of the old myth is you can't change someone. Sure, you know, tell them to move their boots. Yeah, that's reasonable. That's objective. But this whole, you embarrass me when we're socializing, geez, that, you know, that feels like this is the message that you're sending. And what you're telling us, we used to think it wasn't okay to comment on that. You just had to live with that feeling of discomfort. But you're saying, no, call it out. That's important over time. Well, back to stage one, if you're secure about the fact that you are you are good, you deserve to be loved and everything, that, that stuff matters. If it matters to you, then it matters. That's as serious as it is. If you're not sure that you matter, you deserve to be loved, or you're there on their good graces and this is as good as it gets and you need to, you need to put up with whatever you can get because this is as good as it gets, then don't address those things. But what if the response from the significant other is, hey, that's how I am. That's how I act in public. That's how I act socially. What do you say to people then? And it's just, that's the clarity. Well, that is not going to work for me. That does not work for me. That causes a significant amount of pain. And if you love me and I am the prize, then that must change. And if it doesn't change, also the clarity around what will happen next. If you continue to behave in a way that makes me the one you've chosen above everyone else in the world, the one that you promised to love and esteem and admire above every single person in the world, if you continue to behave in a way that makes me feel icky, here's what's going to happen next. We will continue to grow apart. And I'm here because I want to be, not because I have to be. And sooner or later, if that keeps up, I won't want to be here. And that's not a threat. I'm not being dramatic. I'm the prize. And if you don't want to be the person that treats me the way that I deserve, there are actually 10 other people lining up outside ready to take your place if you would like to forfeit it. Wow. 
that's where I think the rubber really hits the road in your message here with those type of things. And this is the interesting thing. When you start realizing that you're going into battle, you have to have envisaged the very end of the battle before you can even start. If you're not clear about where this is going to go and your position, then you'll get pushed back. And the moment you get pushed back, you'll feel guilty or think, oh, maybe I'm being inappropriate and you'll back down. Being the prizes language that Kat and I have used from the beginning, we were clear that we were the prize to each other on day one. Being the you know the prize law of the law of scarcity, you want what you can't have. And so when we laid eyes on each other and when we first saw each other, it was like, oh my goodness, I would do anything in the whole world to win the love and affection of that person. First time I saw a cat, I'm like, my goodness, if I ever get married, that's the one I want. That one there, I've got no hope in hell of ever securing her hand in marriage. But if I could choose that one, and you just do whatever you can, whatever. There's nothing that would be too hard to change. And so. We were very clear on that that's how we started and that although we grew up in a Christian worldview where divorce was seen as, you know, it's that's not even an option, we knew very early on it had to be an option because if you can't say no to someone, then your yes is now irrelevant. It's like if I can't say no, then I actually have to tolerate whatever you dish up and be okay with it because I could never leave this relationship, neither could you. I'm here because I want to be, not because I have to be. Marriage is not based on a historical decision to say yes to you. It's based on a daily decision to say yes to you. And if you keep behaving like that, I'm not going to want to keep saying yes to you. So that's going to be a problem for us. Brilliantly put, as always. All right. Now, number one was security, eradicating security so that you know you deserve to be loved. Number two is clarity. Know what you deserve. Be precise about what you desire. Tell us about number three. And also clarity about the rules of the game. So that's been a big part of how we've navigated moving forward going if relationship is a game how do we help each other win if we're going to play basketball and we didn't know the rules how are we supposed to win if there's no court there's no markings there's no referee we don't know what a foul is you don't know what happens when you get the ball in the ring like it's going to be messy very early on so Kat and I have developed 10 marriage rules that help us play to win we know what what a foul is we know what the penalty for a foul is and they're lovely rules that we've developed together that help us have a have a great experience together Wow. Now, you should write a book about those rules one day. Well, they're, they're a lot of fun. And immediately people go, rules? That's the antithesis of intimacy. Again, back to the importance of gamification because if you can come to terms with the fact that loving relationships are, in, are a game, then you've got to work out what the, what the game is. If you're going to play Monopoly and you don't know the rules or only one person knows the rules, good luck with that. So, yeah, together we've refined the rules over the last few years specifically and it's a lot of fun because it just means we have a great experience together and we're, we're much less likely to do things that cause each other grief because we already know that you can't do that. That's the rules we both signed up for, that you're not going to get away with that. Beautiful. And, and, it's, and it's great to think about a relationship as something that you want to win if you want to win it together, not win against each other, not be the victor within the relationship, but for the relationship to be the victor. Exactly. Then- security, clarity, integrity. So once you're clear that you deserve to be loved, you have clarity about what you, what you desire, what's important to you, which of the things you're going to go after because not everything matters. If you're not clear, you're going to think everything matters and now you're going to be dangerous. You're going to go to, to war about everything. So you realize, you know what, the boots behind the door, they don't matter, but this thing at the party, that does matter. That's got to change. Um, then integrity is, okay, well, still before you go into battle and demand change from your partner, Make sure you've demanded change from yourself first. 
So this is not an exercise in selfishness or arrogance. You're not looking to exert power over and dominate because pushback's coming, I promise you. The example around the party, when you bring that to your partner's attention and they first of all are offended, then naturally defense, defend themselves, they're going to make it about you. Hang on, no, that's just who I am. Don't, no, that's ridiculous. Don't be silly. Don't try and control me. Integrity means that you'll go, hang on a minute. This is actually the best of me speaking to the best of you for the best reason. Don't you dare tell me this is greedy or selfish. The amount of work I've done to even have the courage to address this with you, I'm not getting knocked off this turf just like that. And by the way, I'm not demanding anything of you. I haven't already demanded of myself. And also, by the way, I'm sure there are things that you'll address in me that I haven't seen that I am blind to, and you are welcome to do that. But I am going first, and that's a courageous thing to do. That's a loving thing to do. That's a kind thing to do. So you'll hear me out, and we're going to have this conversation whether you want to or not. Um, So I think it's very difficult if you're ever in a situation where someone demands something from you that clearly they've never demanded from themselves. If ever there's been a leader who's just thought, oh, it's my time in the sun, you're going to do the hard work that I never had to do, it's like, oh, that's horrible. Yeah, there's no boss in this relationship. But if there's a leader who's done the hard work and done the hard yards first, you're very willing to follow their lead. Same happens in loving relationships. If you've seen your partner do the hard yards first, it qualifies them to now talk to you. You know, the whole, the old biblical parable, take the plank out of your own eye so you can cl- see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Or, as kid president says, take the worry about the barbecue sauce stain on your own shirt before you worry about the mess down their shirt. It's that's integrity. You got to go first. It's beautifully put in 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 the in the dialogue that you just talked through. You made me picture that person who, after all these years, has worked up the courage. They've been through the steps to have this conversation, but it could so quickly get shut down by someone stronger and in and, and being a bit defensive to someone who's trying this for the first time. And I love the way in your dialogue, you stood your ground. Now, actually, this is really important to me. I'm not saying this. I'm saying this from a very developed point of view. I've thought about it a lot. It's really important. It's not something I wouldn't be willing to do for you but I'm going first and I want you to hear me out. And I thought that was, that's really strong, but you can imagine that would be a very difficult moment in a conversation for someone who's new. Totally. And this is high stakes. It really is difficult stuff. And this is the importance of this roadmap because it, it says this is how anyone does this successfully, really. This is a framework that works. And if you haven't got the integrity, when the pushback comes and I promise you it's coming, you will back down. You will feel guilty You'll feel like you're being inappropriate. You'll, you know, you'll reflect on your own weaknesses first. You'll go back and think this is all about you. That's all that could happen. So if you've done that work for yourself, then you'll be prepared for the pushback. You go, no, actually, that's not true. You know it's not true. I know it's not true. You're just scared. You don't know how to change. So I'll lead this conversation and this has some integrity to it. The next level is maturity. So once you've kind of worked out security, clarity, integrity, you come with some strong tools and it's it's likely that you'll find a way through to win now. Maturity is the ability to think win-win. So maturity means you're not going to compromise, you'll negotiate. Compromise is often what's seen as an, a necessary evil when it comes to conflict resolution. I think it's a terrible word and it doesn't fit in this model at all. Compromise means you both lose. All right, if you can't get what I want, then I'm not getting good. If I can't get what I want, then you're not having what you you want either. We'll both lose. We'll both suffer together. Negotiation just demands you show up as adults. It's like, hang on a minute. 
we both want to win here. We both love each other. We've got a reason to fight for this. So let's work this out together. Let's find a way that didn't exist. Let's change each other's mind on this. Let's bring our best skills. Let's pitch hard about what we want and why we want it and create an alternative that works for both of us. That does require some maturity. Kids don't have the capacity to negotiate. Adults definitely do. They can be responsible. They can listen. They can be humble. They can take time. They can reflect all those skills. So maturity demands an adult conversation rather than a childish one. I love the distinction that you draw between compromise and win-win. In a, in a ridiculous example, I think back to my early time watching TV at night with my wife, and we would compromise because we thought that was the right thing to do. So I wanted to watch the footy. You want to watch my kitchen rules. So let's just watch something terrible together. Let's watch <laughs> Law and Order that neither of us wanted to watch. Let's compromise. But what's really happening there is neither of us is getting what we want. And I know that's a lame example, but I love the way you paint compromise and win-win. Well, an example of this that probably happens in households around the country. Not too long ago, we we're going to bed and the dishes hadn't been done. And Cass like, ah, oh, we didn't do the dishes. And she says, I don't want to do the dishes tonight. And I go, oh, I don't want to do the dishes tonight. And so we both look at each other and now it's like, oh, okay, well, what's going to happen? And so because we kind of got this framework, then it's an opportunity to go the next step and rather than someone just giving up, whatever, I'll just do them, who cares? Yeah, right, you go to bed, I'll do them. Both of us were clear that we didn't want to do the dishes. So then it was, okay, next step, pitch why you don't want to do the dishes. Pitch why the other person should do them. Like, let's have some skill. And so Kat goes, you might not be aware of this, but I've done the dishes for the last five nights in a row. You've been busy at meetings, doing podcasts, writing. Have you forgotten that? I went, uh, yes, I was oblivious to that. That's terrible. I'm so sorry. Like, the last thing that I want is for you to feel like you just naturally have to do the dishes because I haven't paid attention to it. That's terrible. And I'm sorry that you found yourself in this situation. Now I want to do the dishes. I'm not doing it because I have to. I'd love to. And I'm sorry that I didn't offer before now. So she's changed my mind by bringing data to the table that I wasn't aware of. You sound like a pushover, Jamin. <laughs> well, but I, yeah, we, we keep short accounts. And so I like the fact that those things can be resolved quickly. But, it, you know, it's an example that you can kind of see the point, whatever it is. And again, they're always little things. I reckon little things become big things because people don't know how to bring any skill to these conversations. They don't know how to negotiate and move each other, change each other's mind. From little things, big things grow. No, I, I jest, of course, mate. You, uh, you certainly would not be a pushover. You'd be a very measured and considerate <laughs> person. Now, what's number five then? We've worked through security, clarity, integrity, and maturity is what we were talking about then, which is the difference between win-win and the lame old compromise. Tell us about the last step. So the final step is authority, which is simply the capstone on this model. I think it's often where people rush to. So they use positional authority with leverage. So it's like, as parents, do this. Why? Because I'm your dad. Because I told you to. That's why. I have the authority to tell you. Or your boss, do this. Well, because I'm paying you. That's why. You know, do this because I'm your wife, because I'm your husband, because I'm your friend. Like it's using your position as of the authority to demand it's the lowest form of leverage. You can use that. In this model, though, it's the culmination of security, of clarity, of integrity and maturity. It is earning your right. And it's your earning your right to not be moved. It's earning your right to see this thing through to the end so that you, if you know that you deserve to be loved, if you're very clear about what's important to you, if you know in your heart that this is the best of you and you've done the work on yourself first, 
and that you're bringing your best skills and that you want the best for the other person as well. This is not an act of selfishness. It's an act of courage, maturity, and leadership. Then you will not be moved off the turf. And this is not a request. It's not a suggestion. It is a demand. And you know what? You're very clear to communicate the consequences. If this does not change, here is what happens next. And it's not a bluff or threats. I'm totally capable and willing to enforce the consequences and let you experience the consequences of your choices. So here's what will happen next. It's a beautiful sequence. That's a, it makes sense. The, the order is, is intelligent and you can see it working. What, what's your hope with this book and the work that you do around it? What are you hoping will happen out there in, in households right across Australia and, and the world? So, so I'm hoping that this is a resource for people who are ready to go first. I think there are plenty of people who have realized that they're ready to go first and they're not known what to do next and perhaps have gone into battle out of a place of great desperation and got upset, got emotional, got irrational and not known how to do it and things have gone very badly very quickly. So my hope is that for people who are ready to go first, and by the way, if you're a go first person, it doesn't make you better than your partner or more important than your partner. It's just your gift that you're bringing to that relationship in this season. But my hope is that this this would give you the confidence to understand how you give yourself the best chance possible at navigating conflict and to realize that it's going to happen. It's inevitable that the space will be polluted and you must find a way to clean it. And, and this is how that, that space can be cleaned effectively, efficiently, so that you can move back to intimacy rather than descend into an arrangement. So that's my hope that it'll end some unnecessary suffering for people who genuinely love each other but have let stuff come between and don't know how to fix it. It's those two points that are so powerful in you, mate. The ending of unnecessary suffering and that incredibly powerful image of the space between us and whether it's clean or whether it's dirty and, and cluttered with mess. Very good, mate. It's it's fantastic stuff. Your book is great. I love talking to you about this stuff. You are on one of the most positive life missions that I've come across in a writer and a speaker. I really admire your work. Thank you so much, Jamin, for coming back to the Team Guru podcast. Thanks, David. Thank you for such great questions and an opportunity to speak to a bunch of people. I appreciate it. And that was Jamin Fraser. I'm an unabashed Jamin fan. Love his work. Love his approach to relationships and communicating. One of the themes that connects the two chats we've had on the podcast is the elimination of unnecessary suffering. How about that quote from early in this show that one third of respondents to a large survey named their partner, their life partner, as the most annoying person they know? As Jamin said, that's one third of the population waking up next to the most annoying person in their life every day. Wow. Lucky Jamin is here to help. As always, the lessons I took from my conversation will be on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Thank you.